Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Weggie, supporting good things that need to happen now. Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Diana Gabaldon's best-selling Outlander series of novels begins by telling the story of a young nurse during World War II. She travels back in time to 18th century Scotland. Diana has published eight Outlander books, and she says her ninth one, called Go Tell the Bees That I Have Gone, should be released this year. The books have been developed into a popular TV show on Stars. Diana talks this hour with Deb Leonard, a member of the board of directors for the Book Industry Charitable Foundation and a bookseller at Literati Bookstore in Ann Arbor. Their conversation was recorded at the Traverse City Opera House in July 2014, and Deb asked Diana if she could describe her books to someone who's never read them. No, uh, I have never been able to describe my books in 25 words or less. The closest anyone has come is a nice reviewer named Gavin McNatt from Salon.com magazine, who said, this is the smartest historical romance adventure science fiction story ever penned by a science PhD with a background in scripting Scrooge McDuck comic books. (laughs) I couldn't do a lot better than that. I have, however, seen my books so far being sold as literature, fiction, science fiction, historical fiction, historical nonfiction, it was true. <laughs> now, I was in Foyle's bookstore in London and uh, saw my books in the history section. And I called the clerk's attention to this. And he said, well, Miss Kitty Foyle, who was about 92 at the time, but still kicking, said, Miss Kitty decides where everything in the store goes. Uh, she's read your books, and I believe she believes in time travel. <laughs> so let's see. So historical fiction, his- history. Um, Let's see, we did science fiction, fantasy, mystery, romance, gay and lesbian fiction, uh, (laughs) military history, and horror. (laughs) Now, this is true. I won a uh, Quill Award in 2006 in the uh, category science fiction, fantasy, and horror. What was cool about it was that I beat both George R.R. Martin and Stephen King. Um, is there anything else you would like to know about my books? <laughs> well, just on the off chance that there are people here who haven't read them, you can give a broad outline of kind of how it starts. <laughs> how it starts, that's all I say. Right, okay, well, uh, 90 second sales pitch. <clears throat> In 1946, right after World War II, a British ex combat nurse named Clara Randall goes to the Scottish Highlands on a second honeymoon. Now, she and her husband have been separated for six years by the war. He's been in the Army, she's been in the Army. And uh, they're getting to know each other again, thinking of starting a family. But uh, one day, while her husband is busy, she goes out walking by herself and finds a small circle of standing stones, which, in fact, are all over the British Isles. Um, She walks through this circle and disappears back into 1743, where the first person she meets is a gentleman in an 18th century Army officer's uniform who looks just like her husband and turns out, in fact, to be his six times great-grandfather. Unfortunately, he also turns out to be a sadistic bisexual pervert. And and while trying to get away from him, she falls into the hands of a gang of Scots who are also trying to get away from him for other reasons. And uh, finding an Englishwoman roaming around where no Englishwoman should be. In the 18th century, the highlands of Scotland were like wildest Borneo. No one went there except the army because they had to. So finding an Englishwoman roaming around in what looks to them like her underwear, because she's wearing a 1940s house dress, uh, they scoop her up and take her back to their castle to find out who and what she is. Well, the wicked Captain Randall also wants to know who and what she is and demands that they turn her over to him. Since the Scots are well aware of what this man is capable of, they don't want to do that. Also, they do want to find out who she is for their own purposes. So they don't want to hand her over, but the only way they can think of not handing her over is to force her to marry one of the uh, young clansmen in order to become a Scottish citizen and thus not subject to legal constraints by an English garrison commander. So they force her to marry a young man called Jamie Fraser. Yes, I made a bet with one of the organizers as to how many pocket Jamies there are in the crowd tonight. (laughs) 
But uh, anyway, uh, so Claire finds herself in this invidious situation. She's held prisoner, essentially, in a castle uh, with a bunch of Scots. She's trying to escape from them and get back to the stone circle and back to her husband. Uh, meanwhile, she's falling in love with the young man that she's been obliged to marry. And the wicked Captain Randall is hunting them both. And the story unrolls from there. That's pretty good. You mentioned earlier that you have a science background, that you have a BS in zoology, I do. a master's in uh, marine biology, I and do. a PhD, I'll have to read this one, in quantitative behavioral ec ecology. Um, That's just animal behavior with a lot of statistics. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't think that's a background that most novelists have. Can you kind of tell us how you got from there to here? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Uh, most novelists make their own way. There isn't really a, a well-marked pathway for becoming a novelist. It's not like being a, a lawyer or a CPA. You don't take classes and get a certificate and being you're a novelist. Uh, most people work it out for themselves. For me, I knew since I was eight or so that I was meant to be a novelist. I just didn't know how. And I came from a very conservative family background. My father was fond of saying to me, well, you're such a poor judge of character, you're bound to marry some bum, he said. So, <laughs> so be sure you get a good education so you can support your children. So uh, with this in mind, I thought I would not announce that I wanted to write books for a living, knowing that this was a, an iffy proposition. And instead, I went into science. Oh, I liked science. I was good at it. I enjoyed research. I liked teaching. But I knew I was supposed to be a novelist. And when I turned 35, I said to myself, well, you know, Mozart was dead at 36. Maybe you better get a move on here. <laughs> and uh, I said, OK, uh, on my next birthday, I will begin writing a novel just to learn how. It's not for publication, not gonna tell anyone what I'm doing. I just need to know what it takes to write a novel. Because up to this point, I had written a lot of everything, all the stuff you have to write in the process of getting a PhD, and all of the stuff you get while being a, a, a university professor. So I'd written, you know, uh, everything from a 400-page doctoral dissertation entitled Nest Site Selection in the Pinion Jay, Gymnorhinus cyanocephalus. Uh, <laughs> Or as my husband says, why birds build nests where they do and who cares anyway? <laughs> um, up to uh, you know, uh, scholarly articles and textbooks and documentation and grant proposals and also anything anyone would pay me for. Because while I did not marry a bum, I married a very nice man whom I still have 42 years later. But, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. He uh, did quit work three months after our first child was born in order to start his own business. And I do have to say that in terms of financial stability, there's not that much to choose between an entrepreneur and a bum. So, uh, <laughs> so for the first several years while his uh, business was getting its feet under it, I was our sole support. And we kept having children. I uh, had to learn a, a way of making extra money without taking up prostitution in the home. <laughs> I once told a writer's workshop, I said, you know, um, writing, storytelling is the second oldest profession in the world. <laughs> I said, we have an advantage over the first oldest profession. If you're a writer, you can do it to a lot of people at once. <laughs> it's a little neater as well. But, uh, <laughs> Anyway, I had written uh, a lot of stuff to this point. I knew I could handle nonfiction. The question was, you know, what, what could I write that someone would pay me for? Well, uh, here I must digress for a moment, and there is a reason why I write long books. It's because I like digressions. But um, <laughs> I was hired at the university without a job description because I went to interview and they said, well, the legislature has given us this money for this position. If we don't hire someone, they'll take it away again, so you're hired. Uh, I said, we don't actually have anything for you to do, but uh, we'd like you to design your own research program. And while you're doing that, perhaps you could help Bob here, the assistant director, with his data. They said, Bob has you know, 10 years worth of data in cardboard boxes in his back office. They said, you have a computer background, by which they meant I had one class in Fortran programming, but. Uh, <laughs> It was one class more than any of them had. And they said, so you can help Bob get his data into the computer. This was the early 1980s when they still thought you unscrewed the top and shook the data into it. <laughs> and uh, so I said, fine, and spent the next 18 months of my life writing Fortran programs to analyze the contents of bird gizzards. 
that's what Bob did. Anyway, the upshot of this was a 800-page monograph entitled The Dietary Habits of the Birds of the Colorado River Valley and uh, an expertise in uh, Fortran programming for scientific purposes. And the upshot of this was that I ended up uh, founding a scholarly journal at my university called Science Software Quarterly for scientists who used computers in their work. And so when the need came to earn extra money, what I did was write a brief query letter to the editors of Byte and InfoWorld and PC Magazine and enclosed with it my Science Software Quarterly journal and a comic book that I'd written for Walt Disney entitled Nutrition Adventures with Orange Bird. And uh, it was a very short letter. It said, Dear Sirs, as you can see from the enclosed, you won't find anyone who knows more about scientific and technical software than I do, and at the same time can write so as to appeal to a broad popular audience. <laughs> well, this got immediate results, and within a year I was making as much freelancing for the uh, computer press as I was at the university, which just goes to show how badly they pay assistant professors. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the point here is that I knew how to write almost anything, but not because anyone told me. I had just looked at a couple of examples and uh, then wrote one, and if it didn't look quite right, I poked it till it did. So when I thought it's time to write a novel, my first response was, well, you've been reading novels for 30-odd years. If you write one, surely you will recognize it. So I said, okay, I can write a novel. I said, I just need to know what does it take in terms of mental commitment and daily discipline and organization and research to write something like a novel. Also, I had not written any fiction before other than uh, comic books, uh, which are arguably fiction. And uh, so I said, well, you know, I'm just going to start. So I said, okay, what kind of book shall I write? Uh, because, you know, it didn't matter. I wasn't going to show it to anyone. I could write anything. I said, well, you know, I read everything and lots of it, but maybe more mysteries than anything else. Maybe I should write a mystery. I said, no, mysteries have plots. I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> I said, what's the easiest possible book I could write for practice? And I thought, well, perhaps for me, historical fiction. I was a research professor. I knew my way around a library. I said, it seems easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record, <laughs> which actually works pretty well. And uh, so I said, fine, historical fiction. Where shall I set this? Because I've got no background in history, just the six hours of Western civilization they make you take as an undergrad. And so one time would do as well as another. I'd have to look it all up anyway. So I was casting around for a convenient time and place in which to set this novel, and I happened to see a really old Doctor Who rerun on public television. <laughs> Who's your favorite doctor? I like David Tennant myself. But <laughs> of course, Eccleston was good, but he only lasted one season. Um, anyway, uh, for those of you who are not either cheering or giggling, uh, Doctor Who is a really old, really long-running show done in the UK, where it was originally done as a fantasy show for kids, but has become much more adult and watchable. Uh, the premise of the show, though, is, uh, well, I think it's watchable. The premise of the show is that the doctor of the title is a time lord from the planet Gallifrey who travels through space and time having adventures, and along the way, he picks up companions from different periods of Earth's history. And in this very old show, which has to have been done 50 years ago, he had picked up a young Scotsman from 1745. And this was a 17, 18-year-old young man who appeared in his kilt. And I said, well, that's fetching. <laughs> And uh, mm. uh, I found myself still thinking about this the next day uh, in church. And I said, uh, I said, well, you know, you want to write a book. It doesn't really matter where you set it. The important thing is pick a point, get started. So I said, fine, Scotland, 18th century. So that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland or the 18th century, having no plot, no outline, and no characters. Nothing but the rather vague images conjured up by the notion of a man in a kilt. <laughs> which, as you will all admit, is a very powerful and compelling image. <laughs> it's actually one of the organizers was telling me she had seen a man in the kilt, you know, standing in the line, so we may actually have one on the premises. Yeah. <laughs> you may regret that, sir. <laughs> so uh, that's where I began. I uh, went to the library the next day and began looking up Scotland in the 18th century. Now, all I knew about writing novels was that they should have conflict, so that's what I was looking for. Well, you don't look for conflict in Scotland in the 18th century for very long without uh, running smack into Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites. And I said, okay, that looks like conflict, fine. I said, now, I must have a lot of Scotsmen, of course, because of the kilt factor. Um, 
but I think it would be a good idea if I had a female character to play off these guys. That's tension, that's sex, you know, that's conflict, that's good. And uh, so I said, since it looks like it was uh, Scots versus the English, if I make her an English woman, we will have lots of conflict. So the third day of writing, I introduced this English woman. No idea who she was, how she got in the plot, what she was doing there, but I loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen to see what she'd do. Well, uh, they were all crouched around the hearth muttering, and they turned around and stared at her when she came in. And I was thinking, why does she look funny? What's going on? And one of them drew himself up, and he said, my name's Dougal Mackenzie, and who might you be? And without my stopping to think, I just typed, my name's Claire Elizabeth Beecham, and who the hell are you? <laughs> and I said, well, you don't sound at all like an 18th century person. So I fought with her for several pages, trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like a historical person. She wasn't having any, she just kept making smart-ass modern remarks. <laughs> and she also took over and started telling the story herself. And uh, so I said, well, I'm not gonna fight with you all the way through this book. And I said, no one's ever gonna read it. It doesn't matter what, what bizarre thing I do. Go ahead and be modern. I'll figure out how you got there later. So it's all her fault that there is time travel in these books. <laughs> so that's how, yeah. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, more of Deb Leonard's conversation with Diana Gabaldone, author of the Outlander series. Listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, founder of the year long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's return to Deb Leonard's conversation with Diana Gabaldone. Your novels are, as you say, big, fat historical fiction, usually about 900 to 1,000 pages. Now, when you start a new one, do you just fire up the computer and say, okay, chapter one, here we go? What's your writing process? Uh, no, <laughs> not like that at all. Um, you, often people say, oh, do you do this, do you do that, and, and so forth. And usually the, question, the answer is no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, I don't outline books. I don't plan books out before I write them. I don't work with an outline. I don't work in a straight line. I work in little bits and pieces where I can see things happening. What I need to write on any given day is what I call a kernel a very vivid image, a line of dialogue, an emotional ambiance, anything that I can sense very concretely. If I can, then I will sit down and write a line or two describing whatever it is. Then I sit there and stare at it. I take words out and I put words back and I move clauses around. And I'm trying to make that line as euphonious and clear as I can. And all the time, the back of my mind is kicking up questions. You know, what time of day is it? How is the light falling? What's going on here? And, you know, gradually it begins to grow one way and another. I'll do it for you in a minute. You have to see how it works. It's very hard to describe to people. But uh, I develop a, a scene around this kernel. Sometimes the kernel disappears in the writing. The kernel is never the point of the scene. It's just how I get words on the page to start. And then I go backwards and forwards as I'm writing through this scene. It's very, very slow the way I work. But uh, I'm fiddling and changing and moving things and dropping things out and putting them back. And uh, I will have been through a scene literally hundreds of times by the time it's done. But it is done. It's the best I can make it. And at that point, I will leave it and go look for another kernel. Sometimes I know what happens next, and I'll write that. In the early stages, I never do. So I just look you know, through my historical references until something occurs to me. Or you know, I pick up some idea that's come to me through the day, and we start there. Now, on one of these uh, occasions, what I call a cold day, that's a day where you sit down and you're thinking, I knew how to write yesterday, but I have no clue today. <laughs> this, this totally happens to all writers, believe me. Um, but uh, on one of those days, I said, well, you know, I, I need a kernel somewhere. I'm, nothing's occurring to me. So I picked up a Sotheby's catalog of uh, 18th century Scottish crystal and, and silver. And I said, well, everything in here is demonstrably 18th century Scottish, so anything in here will do. So I picked out a nice goblet. It was a crystal goblet 
goblet with thistles incised in its sides. And I said, okay, that looks Scottish enough, fine. We'll describe this goblet just as a means of getting words on the page. So I'm saying, and I'm thinking, as I usually do, how is the light falling? So I'm saying the light fell through the crystal goblet. Yes, I need to say it's crystal because I'm, I'm gonna see that. Do I need to say through the crystal thistle incised goblet? That doesn't make any sense and it's too many adjectives, no. The light is falling through, the light fell through, the light is falling, the light fell through. We're in somebody else's head, they'd be using the past tense. The light is, uh, the light fell through the crystal goblet. Well, just leave it alone for the time being. Do I need to say goblet? Could it be glass? No, it, it needs to be goblet. So the crystal, we need crystal. The light fell through the crystal goblet uh, and, well, what did it do next? Well, it's, it's, it's crystal, dummy. It fell through it. It fell on the floor. I mean, uh, uh, no, it's not the floor. I can see it. It's, it's a table. Well, of course it is. Why would it be sitting on the floor? Uh, the, the light... <laughs> But there's something about that light. It's, 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 a, it's a very distinct kind of light. I can see it. It's blue. It's got that blue tinge to it. It's winter light. Okay, it's the winter. I'm seeing what you see at about 3 p.m. on a winter afternoon. So, okay, the, the low blue light of winter afternoon of a, of a late winter afternoon. That's too many adjectives, but keep it for now. The low blue light of a late winter afternoon fell through the crystal goblet and fell onto the table. That no, that lands with a thud, you need something else. And fell, back. but I could see the light, it's making a pool of light. Well, of course it is, it's, it's, the glass is not leaking, it's the light. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the low blue light of a late winter afternoon, that's not too bad, fell through the crystal goblet, making a pool of amber light. I can see it, making a pool of amber light, amber pool of light, making an amber pool of light on the polished wood of the tabletop. I can see it's just gleaming like that. And I said, okay, now I know where I am. I'm in Jocasta Cameron's, uh, uh, parlor. She's the only person in this story who would have glass windows. They have to be glass because otherwise I couldn't see the winter light coming in. And would also have a polished wood table, a crystal glass, full of whiskey. That's why the light is amber. The glass is full of whiskey. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, it's winter. You know, is the room cold? And I'm thinking, yes, it is. My fingers are cold. So is the end of my nose, but my feet are warm. There's a fire. Whereas at the wires over there, there's a dog by the fire. I've never seen him before. That's how... <laughs> Now you've said, you've talked before about how being a scientist is not very different from being a writer at all, a novelist at all. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, people assume, you know, that being a scientist is this very cold, clinical, tidy, linear, orderly kind of thing, and being a novelist is this very creative, colorful, warm, touchy-feely kind of thing. Oh, which is not entirely true. You can actually have warm, feely science, and you can certainly have cold clinical writing. But the thing is that both those uh, things are both different sides of the same coin. What both processes rest on is the ability to discern patterns and bring them out of chaos. When you're a scientist, you define your chaos by the kind of organism or system that you choose to study. And when you're a novelist, say, you define your chaos by the subject that you choose. In my case, I chose 18th century Scotland. So that, you know, meant I was not going to be writing about rocket ships and things like that. It cut out a lot of, of stuff. But there was plenty of chaos left in 18th century Scotland to deal with. When you're doing art, you use your own internal chaos, though. You, you use your life experience and your background and your own prejudices and, you know, what you've seen of the world and so forth. No, you use this in a scientific context, too, but it tends to be more the observations that you've made and the experiences of other people who have worked in this field. But again, you're bringing in all of this outside stuff into this delimited chaos. Well, in science, you then make a hypothesis. You said, I think I see this pattern. I think I see what's going on here. So I'm going to say, if this is what's happening, then I would expect this and this and this. And then you can proceed to test those and see whether it's right or not. Uh, when you do art of any kind, your novel or your sculpture or your painting is your hypothesis. That's your test. And uh, you test it by unloosing it on the public and seeing what happens. <laughs> That's very good. Um, are any of your children writers? Oh, are any of my children writers? Uh, yes, actually all of them are in one way or another. Uh, our eldest daughter is an operating room nurse, and uh, <laughs> she says, she says, I'm not a good fiction writer. She says, if you give me a real story, I can tell the hell out of it. She says, but, uh, but you know, I'm not good at making things up. But in fact, she's written a really charming memoir of her, of her uh, nursing training in her first year as a, as a nurse, uh, which has an agent at the moment. We'll see how it does. Uh, our son is a, uh, a published novelist himself. He writes epic fantasy, which is extremely gory, but very funny. And uh, his fourth book will be out in the fall. It's called uh, The City Stained Red. You may look out for it. Yeah, his, his name is Sam Sykes, is what he writes under. 
we gave all the kids my husband's name, which is Watkins, because it's so much easier to pronounce and spell. Yeah, my middle name, my actual name is a Spanish name, and were we speaking Spanish, it would be pronounced Gavaldon, hence the long O in the last syllable. Uh, but uh, you know, Watkins is just easier all around, and uh, it rhymes with bad to the bone, is what I always tell people. <laughs> but uh, anyway, my son chose to use my mother's maiden name because it would get him a better shelf position. So he writes as uh, <laughs> as Sam Sykes. So you can look out for that. Now, the little one uh, is married to a nice young Scotsman and lives in Edinburgh. And uh, yeah, it actually has not one single thing to do with my books. None of my, <laughs> none of my children read my books. As my eldest daughter says, I don't want to read sex scenes written by my mother. <laughs> and it uh, is, in fact, pure coincidence that our younger daughter's name is Jenny and that she married a man named Ian. <laughs> but they do live in Scotland and uh, Jenny is the accounts manager for social media for a Scottish marketing firm, which means we don't know what she does, but they pay her a lot of money to do it. Uh, but she is writing historical fiction on the side and, you know, has not quite got up to the, to the stage where she feels ready to look for an agent, but, uh, but she has written a whole book and is revising it, so uh, she's, uh, she's pretty good too. All right, this is one I've been dying to ask. James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. Did he, he's one of the best romantic heroes ever, right? I think he is the best, but did he spring fully formed out of your imagination or did you have to work on him a little bit? Uh, the other reason my children don't read my books <laughs> is that Jamie Fraser, they know because their friends read my books, that Jamie Fraser is very tall with red hair and so is their father. <laughs> and I, um, I did mention that I had been married to this man for 42 years. <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> No, my husband did not read my first book until after I had uh, sold it, and it came back as a bound galley, and at which point I gave it to him to read. It was halfway through, and he said, well, this is a great story, so I'm loving it. He said, I can't help noticing that this hero of yours is very tall with red hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, it's true. You're Jamie Fraser's body model from the neck down. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> He said, oh, good, now the whole world knows on page 323 what I look like with no clothes on. <laughs> I said, well, it's all right. He's lying on his face in that scene. <laughs> no, my, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Jamie is his own person. In fact, he is endowed with a lot of my traits. But uh, there's no denying that he is physically you know, very much like my husband, or at least like my husband was at that age. And uh, my husband is still in very good shape, but he is a year older than I am. And uh, <laughs> I'm 62, if you were trying to figure it out. Uh, but uh, my husband does uh, share his sense of humor with Jamie uh, to a strong extent. And he also just occasionally comes up with, with really good lines. He accuses me of stealing all his best jokes for Jamie, which is true. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, one year, um, maybe 20 years ago, he was just reading the Wall Street Journal one morning. And uh, he looked up at me and said perfectly conversationally, he said, you know, uh, when I die, if my last words aren't I love you, you'll know it was because I didn't have time. Well, that's what I said, too. <laughs> but anyway, that's where the last line of Fiery Cross came from. <laughs> that was nice. You also have a really interesting way of talking about the kinds of characters that you deal with in your books. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, to me, characters are either onions, mushrooms, or hard nuts, which sounds like an exotic recipe for turkey stuffing. But um, <laughs> a, a, an onion is a character whose essence I apprehend immediately. I know who these people are in their heart and soul from the very beginning. But the more I work with them, the more pungent and rounded they get, and the more layers they develop as we have more experiences. And uh, Jamie and Claire are both onions. Mushrooms are those people who just pop up out of nowhere. I didn't plan them, I wasn't expecting them. They just appear and immediately walk off with any scene they're in. And Lord John Gray is one of my best mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
And a hard nut is somebody that um, I'm kind of stuck with, either for structural reasons of the plot. For instance, Clara is pregnant at the end of the second book. Obviously, there is a kid in the next book, and this is not anybody you know that I that developed organically. I was just stuck with her. Had to decide, you know, who is she, and uh, and at what age are we going to experience her, and what is her background, and you know what's she like, given that I know who her parents are, but kids don't always grow up like their parents. And uh, the other kind of hard nut is the real historical person, Bonnie Prince Charlie or George Washington, for instance, whom you have to animate for your fictional purposes. And to do that, it's a little more of a straightforward job in that you, you research them. You find things that they wrote to try to determine not only how they talked, but what their attitudes were, what their means of using language was, and you know, what were their concerns, what were they likely to have said in this situation or that. But, uh, but it's not like developing a fictional character where you basically you just get to know them and, uh, and see what they do. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, Diana Gabadone talks about the TV adaptation of her Outlander series. Support for this broadcast provided in part by Becky Thatcher Designs, where you find jewelry to commemorate the landmarks in your life, at their stores in Leland, Harbor Springs, Glen Arbor, and Traverse City, and on the web at BeckyThatcherDesigns.com. You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Let's return to Deb Leonard's conversation with author Diana Gabaldone. Okay, I've waited long enough. We have to talk about the miniseries now. Um, well, it's, a, it's not a miniseries. It's a regular TV show, which, oh. with any luck, will continue oh, for sorry. years and years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and since the first book, since Outlander was published in 1991, that's right. I'm sure your fans are like, well, it's about time. But um, why do you think it took so long? Oh, why did it take so long? Well, partly because people kept trying to make a movie out of it. And people kept saying, oh, I want to see a movie made of your book. And I, would, and I want it to be just like it is in the book. And I'd say, well, great, which 40 pages do you want to see? And because uh, as I now know from <laughs> hard experience, you cannot get that book into a two hour movie. There is no way of making a movie that uh, would resemble the original story in any way, shape or form. The, the book has a very intricate underlying skeleton. All the pieces are connected. You start pulling pieces of it out, you don't have anything left. And uh, we, over the years, we, I say that's me and my agents, uh, have optioned the books only four times. So we've had you know, constant inquiries about it, especially as the books became bestsellers. But uh, the way an option works is that a production company will come and offer you a modest amount of money for a period of time. What they get is a year, two years, maybe five, whatever you agree on, during which they have the sole right to try to raise enough money to put together what they need for a movie, to attach a director, get actors, you know, get a, a whole production going. If they can do that, then the contract provides for them to pay you a larger amount of money, which is the purchase price. If they get to that stage, they actually own it, and they own it forever. You'll never get it back, no matter what they do with it. So you want to trust them insofar as it's possible to use the word trust in the same phrase with filmmaker, which it isn't always. But uh, anyway, we were very careful who we dealt with. And as I said, we had it uh, optioned three times before the most recent one. And this was done by a man named Jim Kohlberg, who had actually made a few movies on his own, small ones, but very critically acclaimed. Uh, he had read the book four times before coming to talk to me and in the middle of negotiations called up to tell me he thought he was channeling Murtaugh. 
So, I, you know, <laughs> so, you know, we got along. I, I trusted Jim. And so we signed an option agreement with him. Well, he, like everyone else, wanted to make a two-hour feature film of it. Well, to this end, he hired you know, very respectable screenwriters whose names you would recognize if I were indiscreet enough to speak them aloud. But, uh, and he showed me the scripts. <laughs> this is why I know it's not possible to make a two-hour movie. Uh, I, these were horrible. Uh, I mean, horrible. One of them appeared to be the, 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 the wastebasket outtakes from Braveheart, strung, to <laughs> <laughs> strung together in, a, in sort of a cartoon fashion, punctuated by 20-page speeches about freedom, yeah, which uh, is so not what the Jacobite Revolution was about. <laughs> it wasn't a revolution, it was a rebellion. But um, anyway, the other one was written by a uh, very respectable person who had written a, a film that I actually liked, but uh, her take on it was that Claire was, and I quote, a sexy wild child, you know, who going around kicking up her skirts in the village pub and so forth. I was sort of going, yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, when after Claire goes through the stones, the first thing that happens is a man charges by on a horse and falls off wounded at her feet. I'm thinking, yes, okay. Well, what does this you know competent, capable ex-combat nurse do? Does she fall to her knees and you know, look for his pulse? Does she you know, stanch the spurting artery? No, she throws her hands in the air and runs off shouting, help, help! I'm thinking, oh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fortunately, none of these came to anything. Well, meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, Ron D. Moore, who uh, was the creator of, or the recreator of Battlestar Galactica and the showrunner of this very successful thing. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it's all the Doctor Who people who know who Ron D. Moore was. <laughs> but uh, anyway, very respectable in science fiction and fantasy filmmaking circles. Anyway, he uh, had finished Battlestar Galactica and was looking for another you know, en engrossing project. And he was having dinner with his wife and his production partner and mentioning this. And, uh, they, and one of them said, well, what about Outlander? Have you read that? And the other one said, Outlander? You read Outlander? And they started doing what Outlander fans do when they meet each other. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> He was looking back and forth between them, <laughs> and he said, "Well, do you have a can you give me a copy of this book?" And they both whipped one out of their bags. <laughs> <laughs> And so he took it home, read it all in one night, and said, yes, yeah, okay, we got something wow. here. So he went to see who had the rights, which was, was Jim. And uh, he approached Jim about, you know, uh, collaborating on a TV show, and Jim was saying, no, no, I want to make a two-hour film of it. So Ron kept coming back, you know, every six to eight months and so forth, and about the fourth time he was saying, well, how's that two-hour film working out for you, Jim? <laughs> Jim said, I begin to think you're right, it may be a TV show. So at that point, we got down to brass tacks. This is the first that I'd heard of Ron's interest. But uh, there ensued uh, two years of, uh, of negotiations, which finally resulted in this really, really complicated five-sided contract between Sony, which is the overall company that owns the international distribution rights, Stars, which is the production company that is actually making the show and thus has the distribution rights in the U.S., uh, Ron, Jim, and me. So this took a long time to, to get going, but here we are. <laughs> I don't want to ask you how many times people said, do you get to pick who Jamie is? <laughs> but did you get to have any uh, say in? Um, well, I am, by the terms of the contract, a consultant. And usually this just means that it's a way of giving you extra money without them having to account for it. But it doesn't actually amount to anything. They don't really want you to consult. And uh, in this instance, though, they did. Uh, part of this is owing to you. One reason that Stars wanted this, uh, this property is because of its enormous and enthusiastic fan base. And uh, thank you. <laughs> so a lot of this is your doing. But uh, the last thing they want is for me to uh, get up in front of said fan base and say, oh, they're screwing it all up. I hate this. You know, they don't want that. <laughs> Consequently, they've been extremely nice about including me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, part of it is just that, that Ron and his, uh, his partner, Merrill, are, in fact, very nice people. And uh, they came out to talk to me before the contracts were finalized and before they uh, did the, uh, the pitch of their, of their first script. And they spent two days at my house, you know, talking through the characters, the storylines, the backstory, you know, how I saw things, what I saw in the future, and so forth, and explaining to me also their own ideas of adaptation and, you know, how you would do things slightly differently for visual mediums and, and you know, what they, they thought they might do. For instance, uh, Ron said at one point, he said, you know, the book begins rather slowly, and he said, you can do that in a book because the prose will carry people along. He said, you can't do that in a, in a TV show or a motion picture. You need to rivet people's attention immediately so they don't change the channel. 
they said, you know, the story is obviously centered on Claire. We need to know who she is immediately and feel, you know, instant empathy with her. He said, so what I would like to do is uh, like a two hour, a two minute visual prologue where we show her uh, during World War II in a French military hospital, you know, uh, blood spurting, limbs coming off, you know, putting people back together and being who she is. And I was saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and we got along. We were on the same wavelengths. And uh, yeah, I approved of his ideas. And, and as I told him, he gave me his first script before he took it to pitch to stars to see what I would say. And I said, you know, this is the first thing I've ever read based on my work that did not make me turn white or burst into flame. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we actually get along very well. But they send me scripts to read and comment on, and they show me footage from the show, and you know, they ask me my opinion. They're under no legal compulsion to take it, but they do pay attention to what I say. And they usually will, you know, if I say, I, have a, you, I, I think there's a real problem with this particular thing, and that's very uncommon. I really like what they're doing, and mostly I just say, yeah, this is great. You know, every once in a while there's some little quibble in uh, one script uh, where Jenny is having a baby, uh, some other, there's a howl from the bedroom, and someone says to her husband, it sounds like your wife's giving birth to a piano. And uh, I wrote back and said they didn't have pianos in the 18th century. <laughs> So they changed it, and I just saw that in the footage, and now he says, it sounds like your wife's giving birth to a harpsichord. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's mostly just very trivial little things like that. Did you get to be involved in any casting decisions, and how do you feel oh. about the people that they've cast? Oh, casting decisions and so forth. Well, I actually had nothing direct to do with the casting. That would not be in my purview. But uh, when they began their casting, you know, obviously the, the main characters are Jamie and Claire. And they were thinking, well, Claire, you know, there's dozens of, you know, really good British actresses. Surely we can find one without too much trouble. So she'll probably be the first thing. And Jamie, you know, how are we ever going to find the king of men, as Ron calls him? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, this will just take forever, but you know, I'm sure we'll find one. It'll be the UPS man or something. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they had just barely begun looking, and I was driving with my husband from uh, Phoenix to Santa Fe, and it stopped in Flagstaff, and I got this call from uh, Ron and Merrill, and they said, oh, we're so excited, we found Jamie. And I said, really, you have? You're kidding. They said, no, no, we, we, we can't believe it either, but uh, we're, we're pretty sure. We're sending you his audition tapes to look at. And I said, oh, great, you know, I can't look at them really until I get uh, where we're going tonight, but great, what's his name? And they told me, it's uh, Sam Hewen, spelled it for me. So I was Googling Sam Hewen on my iPhone as I was driving with my husband, or he was driving, I was Googling. and. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at his IMDb page. Now Sam is a very chameleonic actor. He looks totally different in every single one of his of his parts. And in fact, I wrote to him after having spent considerable time with him in LA and Scotland. I said, you know, having, you know, now been in your presence for a you know, long period of time, I still have no idea what you actually look like. <laughs> I said, I have a real strong sense of your physical vibe though. <laughs> Yeah, no, my uh, husband actually went with me to Scotland. We spent uh, 10 days with everybody on set uh, watching that. And in fact, I did a, a small cameo with them. I got to be a TV actor for two days, which is fun. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, they had a nice dinner for us at the end, which is where my husband actually, he'd met Sam before, but this is the first time he'd spent much time in his company. Afterward, he said, you know, that Sam Hewen is a big sucker. He's got his own gravitational field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. I said, well, he's exactly the same height you are, but he weighs 40 pounds more. <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, so I was not sure what to expect. I was looking at these photos, and I was thinking, this guy looks grotesque. What are you thinking? <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, we got there, and so I booted up my computer, and I'm sort of looking through my fingers because I'm not sure what I'm going to see. And uh, five seconds in, I'm thinking, well, he doesn't look anything like his photos. He looks fine. Then five seconds more, he was gone, and it was just Jamie Fraser right there. And I was going, yeah, yeah. he's totally gobsmacked. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was a fabulous actor, really, really good. And, uh, and uh, so then the search went on for Claire and so forth. They cast any number of smaller parts and so forth, which they didn't show me. But finally, finally, at the very last minute, they, they came up with Katrina Balfe, this lovely Irish actress who, uh, who just is Claire. As I said, we, we looked at dozens of really good British actresses, but none of them was Claire. And then Katrina had actually done a, a self-tape. They said, we, we think she made it on her 
iPhone, you know, she just <laughs> set it up with a timer and then dashed into shot. <laughs> and she said she, you know, didn't have a casting director or anything, so it was a cold read, And uh, but there was something about her. And when they couldn't find a Claire anywhere, they had kind of gone back to the casting company and said, well, send us all the people you rejected. Let's look at everything again. And so all the stars people looked at everything again over a weekend, and they all came back. Every single one of them said, well, there's this, this one, you know, there's something about her. And each one of them had picked Katrina. And they said, oh. So they called her back in to do a, you know, a, a more formal reading. And, and uh, then they made uh, poor old Sam fly from London to, uh, to L.A. To, to test with her. It's an 11-hour flight. He told me I flew for 11 hours, did the test in one hour, flew back to London, and then <laughs> had to go directly to the um, makeup studio to have the prostheses for my back fitted. <laughs> he said that took seven hours. At the end of this, I was just standing in the parking lot because <laughs> they'd screwed oh. up my cab. <laughs> I was left alone there. <laughs> <laughs> about to pass out. So yeah, he suffers for his art, yeah. But um, anyway, I saw that audition, that joint audition between them. It was just fabulous. You know, they just struck sparks off each other immediately and, uh, and they've just done a wonderful job together. Great. You've been writing about these characters for over 25 years. Are you tired of them? <laughs> Am I tired of them? Uh, no. <laughs> well, bear in mind, I have been married to the same man for 42 years, too. I don't get bored easily. <laughs> so we know there'll be one more book at least, but you're yeah, not making I, a Yeah, I don't plan the books out ahead of time, so I never know how many books there are. Uh, but uh, I do know there's ninth, because I wasn't through telling the story at the end of Moby. Great. <laughs> so. How many uh, books did you write before you actually got to Scotland, and were you really happy that it was like you had portrayed it? Ah, uh -huh. uh, Outlander is the only book I wrote purely from library research because you know, I was not telling anyone what I was doing, including my husband. I couldn't really announce that I needed to go to Scotland for several months to do research. Uh, so I, I did that, and also, you know, it was for practice. But uh, we sold it, and they gave me a three-book contract. And so I said to my husband, well, I think we really must go and see it. Uh, so we did, and spent two weeks driving around the highlands and uh, exploring. I had a wonderful time, and I acquired a much better Gallic dictionary on my trip. And, you know, it was really great, but, uh, but it was, in fact, exactly as I had been imagining it, uh, which was, was a good thing on the whole. <laughs> but uh, really, the only thing that you can't find out from research is what a place smells like, because they don't put that in the tourist brochures. But, uh, <laughs> so, so I know what Scotland smells like from personal experience. It's got a very distinct smell. Well, it's funny that you said that, because we've been talking the last couple of days, and I said, you know, I, I think it was such a great plot device to have Claire's background be as it was, not just a combat nurse, but her having the childhood, having been kind of dragged hither and yon by her uncle, so she was in very primitive situations, and she was used to not having hot showers or things smelling really weird for a while or squishy things. Um, <laughs> so I always thought that was a great device, too, so I, I think you've just done brilliantly. Well, thank you all very much. That. You can see I'm as big a fan as you guys are. <laughs> I forgot to ask you, which of your characters intrigue you? Which of my most? characters intrigue, intrigue me the you most? the most? Which ones? I can. Oh, they pretty much all do. <laughs> They're fascinating. Uh, people always ask me, you know, well, how much of you is in Claire? To which the answer is 15.3%. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, really, Jamie has much more of me in terms of, you know, spirituality and his sense of family and, you know, tribal organization and responsibility and all that. But uh, there is a fan group in Phoenix who take me out for tea every spring to pick my brains about a book. And on one of these occasions, they got started on the character of Black Jack Randall. And they're going, oh, he's so loathsome. He's, so, he's such scum. He makes my skin crawl. And I'm sitting there thinking, sipping my tea and thinking, you have no idea you're talking to Black Jack Randall, do you? <laughs> I mean, they're all me. Who else would they be? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you have a, a particular affection for Lord John. Oh, yeah. I like Lord John very much. As I say, he's a mushroom. He just popped up out of nowhere, and he walked off with things. And the thing about him is that being who he is, you know, totally honorable gentleman, aristocrat, you know, brave soldier, but he's gay in a time when that was a capital offense. That means that he lives chronically with constant conflict or the possibility of it. And that means that any situation you put him in will be interesting just because of who and what he is.
Have you ever had people talk about um, the whole the Outlander novels as feminist? Have I heard people talk about the Outlander because novels Claire's as feminist? Such a very strong female character. She you know, doesn't really take a lot of guff. Um, no, well, no? well, people say, oh, you write such strong women, and I say, well, I don't like stupid ones. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't think anyone's ever so described them as feminist as such. In fact, feminists usually jump up and down and froth at the mouth because of the infamous wife beating scene in Outlander. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Yeah, uh, wait till you see that on the show. <laughs> People ask uh, Ron, you know, you know, what are you going to do about scenes like this and that? And he said, if it's in the book, we'll show it the way it is in the book. And they did. <laughs> no, it's a great scene. Yeah, did it perfectly. <laughs> Yeah, no, that uh, scene is one of my favorites because it illustrates so perfectly the cultural clash going on. I mean, from Claire's point of view, she's totally justified in what she did. She was trying to you know, get back to the stone circle, back to Frank. Uh, this might be her only chance that she knew where she was. She could you know, more or less see the stone circle. And uh, if she didn't leave then, she might never be able to make it. So she left. Um, it wasn't her fault, as far as she's concerned, that she then got captured by Captain Randall, causing you know, everybody to have to come and rescue her and thus be in danger. Well, from Jamie's point of view, he's totally justified, too. Uh, she disobeyed his orders, ran off, and uh, got all of them into hideous danger. Now he's being you know, even more closely pursued by Captain Randall, who knows he's in the neighborhood. And he, she's just put all of their lives in danger, and the entire clan that's with her are furious with her um, because of this. Well, he's her husband. You know, it's his job you know, to kind of restore her to, uh, to the clan, so to speak, by you know, punishing her, you know, making it clear that you, 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 you've done wrong. You know? And so that's what he feels obliged to do. And he also knows if he doesn't do it, his Uncle Dougal will. So anyway, he, uh, he's, he's going to do it, you know, come hell or high water. She, of course, being a 20th century woman, has major issues with this. But as I say, you know, both of them are totally justified in their particular points of view, but those views are diametrically opposed. You know, they're just complete butting of heads. And when push comes to shove, he outweighs her by 80 pounds. You know, he's going to win. <laughs> well, I think we have come to the end of our time for tonight. Thank you. That was Diana Gabaldon talking with Deb Leonard. Diana Gabaldon is the author of the Outlander series. Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Weggy, supporting good things that need to happen now. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org and listen to past programs at interlockenpublicradio.org. For Interlochen Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick.